Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's the question that was asked 2,000 years ago approximately by some religious leaders to Jesus as they heard him forgive a man of his sins, perhaps for the very first time as he reveals who he is to a crowd around the Sea of Galilee. We believe in a city called Capernaum. Luke chapter 5 verse 21 records this. And the story is perhaps the most pertinent stories that maybe you will ever hear if you're watching this video and you've never heard of Jesus or maybe you've heard of him and have rejected him because he brings up a topic that cuts across all lines, all beliefs, all worldviews, and it's the reality of sin. I have no idea if you ever thought about that in your life. Uh, I don't know about you, but I personally try to avoid thinking about it. I want to be a positive person, and I tend to overlook my sins and fit, kind of focus on other people's sins. Unfortunately, that's what we do. Uh, we rarely get, get upset when we cut someone off in traffic, but have someone do that to us, we get pretty upset. So we recognize sin when it occurs generally. We just don't like to look at it ourselves. And we certainly don't think, like to think about what the final outcome of that is, whether it's judgment or heaven or hell. But the story occurs here in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Just simply read through it. It's nine verses. Beginning in verse 17, on one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. This is referring to Jesus, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's the question. That's the decision they were forced to, to contemplate and hopefully make. Verse 22, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up and before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. An amazement seized them, and they glorified God. And were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's the question. Well, let's dig into this a little closer. I believe even if you're saved, even if you have a personal walk with Christ, and you say, well, Jesus, I, I know that. I believe you can find a lot to apply in your life this very week from this passage of Scripture. As I dug in, not only did I see things that we can apply to our own lives, and I'm sure you can as well, it's just taking the time to look at it a little closer, but how is it we can share Jesus with others? Quite frankly, the vast majority of people that I know don't trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And I know a lot of people that do, but the vast majority don't outside these church walls and 
I believe probably in America today, the vast majority of people in America believe in God, but that's radically different than believing and trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Because you'll see throughout the scriptures, there are individuals who believe in God, but you can believe in God and miss Jesus. So let's begin, verse 17, on one of those days as he was teaching, let's pause there. This is important because as you are trying to share the gospel with people and you give them a Bible or a New Testament and you just encourage them, most of the time we encourage people to start out just reading the book of John. The book of John is one of four gospels, but it's unique. It's quite different than the other three. Matthew, Mark, and Luke in scholarly terms are called the synoptic gospels. And I won't go in depth there. It's just that they're fairly close and similar in how they present the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But here's the issue. If you hand a Bible to someone and they look at it very closely and you you love that, you want to see someone dig into it, they will notice there are some differences chronologically within the accounts. And all of a sudden they get really upset like, oh man, these are eyewitness accounts and I can't trust them. This is different here and this is different here. I've had that come up multiple times in just the past couple of months. But here's what they don't understand. And as soon as you explain it, if you know to explain it, they're perfectly fine with it, just as we all are perfectly fine with it. And it's simply this. Imagine a year from now, you were asked to write a history or just give an account of what happened this past year. How would you do it? Would you necessarily do it chronologically or would you do it through a lens or a theme of something that impacted you greatly? Maybe through, like if you're living in Texas and you're having to undergo what most people don't even realize is this horrible economic downturn, not due to the virus, but due to the oil prices. And it impacts a lot of people's lives. So they would often maybe tell of this past year through that lens. Or maybe you're into politics and you're going to tell of this year in the future through the lens of the re-election or the election campaign. Or maybe you're just a big basketball fan and you see this year as the only year in the history of your memory that we never played March Madness and and got to the tournament. Whatever the case, we often view history thematically. And here in Luke, he just says, on one of those days, he's not trying to present a chronological account precisely. He orders the stories thematically. So there will be differences within Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So don't let that throw you. The Word of God is not contradicting itself. They're, not, uh, they're just providing different perspectives. And then we have to ask, what is he trying to provide in how he's doing it? What is the focus here? So on one of those days, as he was teaching, a very boring scene, he was teaching in a house. He wasn't teaching in a synagogue or at the Temple Mount. He was teaching in a house. And if you know anything about houses in those days, they were very small. So even just a few people crowded around would make it almost impossible to get to Jesus. Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So Luke is being very careful here to say, hey, the word's gotten out. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the leaders of the, the Hebrew faith at that point, they had traveled from all over, even from Jerusalem up to the north, and there was quite a negative outlook on those to the north. They were kind of considered hicks or rubes, backwards country people, so to speak. They even had a different accent, yet 
they were willing to travel and to hear this teacher from everything they'd heard. And we'd read in the previous accounts of the mighty works Jesus has done, as well as his teaching. So they had come even from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. This is incredibly applicable for this reason. How many of you going through, oh, maybe your day and you get up in the morning and you have your devotion and it's in the Gospels and Jesus does a miracle and the disciples are there and you're like, oh, that's great. That was Jesus. He was God. Of course he could do that. I don't think Jesus really had to deal with and then fill in the blank. I don't really think Jesus had to deal with my problems. And even if he did, he was God, right? He really can't relate. He was God. Of course he gave up his home. Of course he uh, was penniless. Of course he could just walk around teaching the word of God. He doesn't have to deal with the coronavirus. He doesn't have to deal with four kids. He doesn't have to deal. Well, let's just wait a minute. Here it says, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Jesus was fully God and fully man. But apparently, he had given up certain aspects that did not allow him to simply heal on his own. And this is really, this is getting into some very deep theological questions that Scripture just touches on, but doesn't really go super deep. It just affirms that God or Jesus is fully God and fully man. I want to direct you to Philippians chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 4 just as a couple verses that may give us some insight into what is going on here. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Why was it that Jesus need, needed the power of the Lord with him to heal? Could possibly be this. Beginning in verse 5, Philippians chapter 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Now, pages and pages have been written on what this means. Whatever the perspective is, he explains it like this. By, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. So he was human. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death even on the cross. So he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. So he was fully man. Then Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, says this, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So he was fully man. He was fully God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. So right off the bat, you have to realize, wait a minute. Yes, Jesus was God. He could do all these things, but he can sympathize with our weakness. But one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. Are you single and having trouble being alone and single? Well, guess what? Jesus was alone and single. He can sympathize. Do you have family problems? Do, do you have issues with your parents? Well, Jesus at one point had issues with his parents. More than likely, Joseph, his, his essentially adopted father, likely passed from the scene. His parents or his family once thought he was crazy. Do you have financial problems? Jesus was poor. He didn't have a home. 
He can relate. He can sympathize. Are you struggling to do the will of God while the world is pulling at you from every possible perspective to not do the will of God? Jesus can sympathize. He was tempted, yet was without sin. Jesus can sympathize as our high priest. Verse 16 of Hebrews 4 says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So what is the solution when we're tempted? To realize Jesus was tempted and was without sin. In other words, it's possible. Not because Jesus was simply God, but he was faithful. And what is the solution? To draw near God to the throne of grace. Jesus healed and the power of the Lord was with him to do so. Verse 18, And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. So right off the bat, this is not just any old scene of maybe someone who had a fever or there were some problems, a very serious situation. And you had apparently his friends bringing a man on a bed. If you can imagine going through the countryside, you, maybe you're one of the men today listening to this and you have a lot of things on your plate. It's Mother's Day, or we've just passed Mother's Day. I'm sorry, we're recording this on Mother's Day. Maybe you just have, want to spend some time with your family, but you have a sick friend and you have a decision to make. Do you go help him or not? Well, the tendency is to want to go help him. But when it's an ongoing problem, every moment of every day for him, I would have to imagine it would be hard for him to call you or communicate with you continually asking for his help. So maybe the word goes out. This guy asks his friends to come help him. He hears of Jesus who's healed all these people. And they make a decision. They were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. So they made the decision to, to go and take him. But there was a problem, verse 19, but finding no way in to bring him in uh, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. They found a way. One of the huge issues within modern Christianity, especially if you're watching this on video, you're, you've probably seen other videos out there, is this idea that the gift of healing is still active today. And we have faith healers all around saying if you have enough faith and if you sow a seed of basically money to their ministry, you could possibly get healed. And they claim these healings. I can tell you, a lot of people even outside of those ministries believe the gift of healing still exists today. And many of them are my friends and family members, and I love them. But as I read this passage of Scripture, I've often tried to figure out how do I communicate with them that I don't believe them when they say they believe the gift of healing exists. This is why. And maybe you have family members. Maybe this will help you. If you really believe, and I know many people say they believe, and I see their lives, and I'm like, wow, you guys are amazing. You're such a blessing. They're sacrificial. They serve. They teach. And I'm, they're even inspiring me in my faith. But when they say they believe, they don't really understand what they're saying. Because I know them. If they truly believe, they would be like these men. 
We have individuals in our church that are dying of cancer. Individuals that have been in car wrecks and are blind. We know people who are paralyzed. If they really believed the gift of healing still existed, not, and this is important, we believe God heals. That's why we pray for healing. But the gift, someone that God has endowed with his power, as we just read, the power of the Lord was with Jesus. Someone endowed with that power heals so much that we can identify them as someone with the gift of healing. If we believe that, we would grab our blind friend. We would go to the Dornbecker's Children's Hospital and clear that place out. We would sell our cars and we would do whatever it takes to get those individuals to whatever church, whatever nation on the other side of the globe, supposedly, and get them in. And nothing would stop us. I know these people, but they're not doing that. Nobody's doing that. At best, you could go to some of these crusades that claim healing, healings, and if individuals, if you listen to individuals who really are sick and paralyzed or have significant diseases and they've been to this, they, they say it looks like a mash unit in the back, but those people never get to go forward. The only people that get to go forward are the, the people in the neck braces and supposedly the wheelchairs, but no one gets to actually examine them beforehand. If the gift of healing were truly present and the power of the Lord was in those gifts, we would see the paralyzed, the lame raised, the dead raised even. But that's not happening. And it's not happening because God doesn't love us. It's because these gifts, as we're about to see, and the healings were for a purpose. It wasn't the end. It was just simply to demonstrate the authority of the message, whether it was Jesus or his apostles in the early church. Well, other people who are completely unfamiliar with this story, they're asking, why do they go up on the roof? That sounds pretty weird, especially in modern-day roofs. I mean, our roofs are, are pretty steep. They're sloped quite a bit. Well, if you go to any arid environment, for, for instance, here in America, Phoenix, Albuquerque, anywhere in the south, you'll see adobe-designed buildings where there's generally flat roofs. It looks flat, but there's a slight little slope to them if you get up on the roof. The point being is in arid climates, flat roofs are good because it actually allows you to collect water. In Israel, if you go to Masada, for instance, there's this intricate system around this mount, this outcropping, this fort that collects water off the walls and flows into an underground cistern. And so you don't want to shed water and just get rid of it in an arid environment. You actually want to collect it. And so it makes it very easy in building homes to do so if you have a, a flat or a much flatter roof. So it's very common in the ancient Near East, as you read throughout scriptures, to go up on the roof. It was a common area. Think of it going out on a deck today, maybe, or a, a porch, something overlooking. A lot of activity occurred on rooftops. So they go up on the roof, dig in through the tiles, remove them just for the mere chance to get their friend healed. Verse 20, it says, And when he saw their faith, he said to the man, notice this, he saw their faith, it apparently includes his friends, the individual who was lying there paralyzed, and then he speaks specifically to the man and says, Your sins are forgiven you. The interesting thing is this, if you've ever had to deal with forgiveness in your life, maybe you're trying not to hold a grudge, we're, we're commanded not to be bitter, and you think, well, we need to forgive, but you know that person hasn't repented, you're struggling with, 
are you supposed to forgive him or are you not? Because after all, we're to forgive as the Lord forgives. But you'll notice the Lord almost never forgives. And I would say never forgives unless someone repents. What he does do is he loves and extends grace. But forgiveness is important because it requires the person to repent and that actually helps the person because it helps the person recognize, hey, I'm in sin, I need to stop doing what I'm doing and I need to turn to God. So the reason why forgiveness requires repentance is because that's a good thing and if you cut out the repentance, forgiveness is just a license to sin without repentance. And so here people would say, well, maybe he's just giving this man a a license. He's not requiring him to repent. But within the context, you'll notice Jesus is examining their hearts and their thoughts. And so very clearly what precedes the forgiveness is their faith. Whatever faith they had, whether it was simply to, to heal, to heal based upon the forgiveness of sins, and this goes back to sickness, The vast majority of of sickness and disease in Scripture has to deal with just this fallen world in which we live. But in the New Testament, there's one aspect of sickness or even death that is the direct result of sin. And we read about that, especially when we're taking the Lord's Supper. It's it's very rare. Uh, Occasionally in the New Testament later on, James In the book of James, it says to call the elders, and if a person has sinned, they're to uh, anoint this person with oil and offer up a prayer of faith, and the prayer of faith will, will be effective in healing this person. So there is a subset, a very rare subset of sickness that ends in death or or serious problems such to the degree that apparently the individual themselves cannot offer a prayer anymore, perhaps. And so it looks as though that's the sort of situation we're dealing with here because everywhere else, Jesus requires the person first to repent in order to be forgiven. And I believe their faith is evidence of that. So he forgives their sins. But this is the problem. It's the problem today. Almost no one will have a problem with you if you're listening to this video with you listening to this video. No one will have a problem with you going to church. No one will have a problem with you living next door to them as long as you're a generally nice neighbor. No one will have a problem with you at work. The only time they're going to have a problem with you more than likely is when you bring up sin. Sin is the third rail in today's society. Everyone, once again, just as I started this message, everyone recognizes sin in everyone else's life. What's wrong? But when you begin talking about sin in our lives, and not just sin, but the need for forgiveness, that brings in this whole realm of judgment. And that's something that supposedly we're absolutely never supposed to do. Except those individuals who don't like that immediately judge you, ironically, for making judgments. (laughs) So it's rather silly and, and nonsensical. But this is the heart of the gospel. The gospel is good news because of sin. Sin is the problem that we face universally, everybody. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how good-looking you are. I don't, I don't care about any of that. Everyone simply 
recognizes there are certain things that are good and certain things that are bad. And there's one simple biblical truth. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That includes you if you're listening and it includes me. And we have a sin problem. And then it really comes down to, okay, if I acknowledge sin, I must acknowledge there's a God. And then I have to search out who is this God and do I have any hope? Maybe there are multiple gods, someone would say. Well, as you examine all the God claims in the entire history of the world, I believe Christianity, biblical evangelical Christianity, is the only thing that holds up to scrutiny. And in Scripture it says, the wages of sin is death. That's our sin problem. That's the ultimate judgment here on earth. But the next question is this, when we're talking about sin, is what is that final judgment? As we come together as a church and we'll begin meeting again in smaller groups, hopefully observing uh, all the directives that uh, we can, uh, that we're living under, we're going to be doing so not just as a social activity. So many people have mistaken churches just as a social function, but we have a purpose. And our mission here at Blue Mountain Baptist Church is to be disciples of Jesus, but it's also to make disciples. In order to make disciples, we have to understand how do we share the gospel. And if you have no other way to share, I believe this is the best question that you can ask anyone. I've heard it all my life. For a while it went out of vogue, and I believe Ultimately, regardless of worldviews, philosophical opinions, uh, theories, and everything else, it cuts to the heart no matter who you're talking to. And it's simply this. If you were to die right now today, where would you spend eternity in heaven or hell? Or you can even leave that last piece off. If you were to die right now, where would you spend eternity? You immediately turn a conversation that's about golf and hunting or sewing or work or kids, into an eternal, consequential decision. If you were to die right now, where would you spend eternity? Anyone can ask that question. It forces that individual to deal with sin, to deal with forgiveness, or judgment. That's where we're going here. And Jesus begins his ministry hitting probably that third rail in their day as well, sin. Verse 21, we see that the leaders of the day immediately recognize this reality. And they say, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's one thing to heal physically. It's one thing to cast out demons it's one thing to even be a good teacher of the law. So all of those things, you might be a powerful man of God, gifted by God. You might even be a prophet. But God alone is capable of forgiving sins. They knew it. So, this forces their hand. Is Jesus God? For God alone forgives. So when I encourage you to ask that question of your friends, if you were to die today, where would you spend eternity? 
and it comes to the issue of sins and forgiveness, a lot of their answers will be the good person answer. Well, we immediately begin judging ourselves on the curb. We're like, well, I'm better than Hitler. I'm better than the guy down the street. I've never been arrested. I, I help little old ladies across the street. I'm a good neighbor. They start doing the good works sort of situation. The problem is you still have a sin problem. You can't get rid of sin by doing something else. Once we've sinned, we've sinned. It doesn't go away. God alone can forgive sins, and Jesus is making this claim to be able to forgive. Jesus is the solution to sin. That's where Jesus begins to divide. It's not that people have a problem with Jesus' teaching or his healing or any of the real maybe teachings on being a good person, most people would phrase it like. It's the fact that it was God. And he's calling out sin. Who alone can forgive sins but God? My question to you is this. Let's say you're a believer watching this. Have you made up your own Jesus? And you think, well, of course not, Scott. I've not made up my own Jesus. Well, let me ask you, what is your faith? Is there a sin that you don't believe God can overcome, He can handle, He can forgive? Or do you have a pet sin that just kind of resides in your life that you never actually ask for forgiveness for? Have you made up your own Jesus? Because remember, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, their entire life, their entire profession was about God. And the vast majority of them rejected Jesus. So you can believe in God. You can have a tremendous faith that you sacrifice for, but miss Jesus. Jesus is simple. He's real, but he requires repentance and forgiveness is what he gives through his grace. I've just discovered as we're wrestling with trying to follow the Lord and trying to follow the government, a lot of people have intermixed our biblical commands with constitutional commands. And my job is to lead you to be disciples of Jesus, not patriots. Hopefully the, the two are the same in many respects, but they are not the same. And so as we're trying to follow Jesus under our, our current leaders, it's difficult to know when to push back because of what Jesus says, or do we start pushing back, if we push back at all, based upon constitution maybe, or laws? It's a tough line to draw. I would just simply ask you to think back and like, this Jesus that we're following, is your greatest concern about holiness, righteousness, the fruit of the Spirit, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Are you excited about going that direction in which, like Colossians chapter 3 that we talk about, your greatest concern is putting off the old self and putting on the new self? Or are you more concerned with your own rights and the life in this world rather than the kingdom of God? You see, this big question, who can forgive sins but God alone? 
Is that what's on your heart today as you're looking at your friends who are in need of forgiveness and perhaps yourself? Verse 22, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, once again, this is interesting, he's able to perceive their thoughts. So there's an aspect of Jesus, clearly he's God, that he has not set, um, that he, he has grasped. Let's use biblical terms. He is able to perceive their thoughts. And he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? It's okay to ask questions. The question is, where do you go for the answer? Verse 23, he says, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? There's nothing but crickets. Obviously, Jesus isn't asking, can you say either of these two things? Which is harder? The implication is, is if you can say your sins are forgiven, that's far harder because the implication is only God alone can do that. He's not disagreeing with them. So, if one is true, then the other must be true. So they're debating whether or not he can really forgive sins. So he's about to demonstrate his authority through healing. Verse 24, But that you may know that the Son of Man, Son of Man is a title that comes from Daniel. It's this image of man being in the clouds, the only place where God himself really reigns. So it's this bringing together man and God. So he says, But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. If you believe Jesus can heal, if you believe the eyewitness accounts, the gospel accounts, in the many accounts after Scripture is written by what we often call the early church fathers, then you have to deal with this reality that Jesus was God. So as the famous apologists over the centuries have, have discussed, either he was flat out lying and was crazy, or he was God, Lord. So this man, just through the spoken word, tells him to rise, get up. Walk and go home. And he does it. Jesus asks. And he gives them proof. But here's the interesting thing. Once again, going back to your friends that you're trying to share Jesus with, they, they would often say, well, if I got to see Jesus personally, then I might believe in him. If I got to see that, but I don't know that I can trust that. Well, here's, as you begin reading scriptures carefully, what you realize very few people saw this, historically or worldwide. Very few people lived in that area for that period of time and got to, to actually see it. As a matter of fact, here in this case, likely inside of a small room in a home, all the crowds outside, they didn't get to see it. It was word of mouth. Here's the problem with sharing Jesus re requiring proof. And there is a specific method uh, in 
most people describe it as defending our faith in apologetics. It's called the evidential perspective, where you're giving evidence. J. Warner Wallace is a prime example of this. I would not recommend trying to share Jesus through the evidential method, because ultimately, proof is temporary. We must come to God by grace through faith. You see, we get to read of this proof. People heard of the proof. Some people saw, but that was for a very short period of time. Even creation itself that testifies of God, it is temporary and it's marred by sin. Ultimately, the way you share God, you'll see here in just a second, you share Jesus through the word of God. And Jesus goes to the heart of this. In the midst of all this healing, he begins to talk about sin, something that people recognize. No matter who they are, no matter what their background, there is right and there is wrong. We're not talking about the moral argument for God because that doesn't get to the God of the Bible. Once again, I'm suggesting you actually use the Word of God to talk about Jesus and who He is with your friends. One of the curious things here that I've thought about, and I only have a theory on this, Jesus says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Why does he tell him to go home? If I was this guy, I'd be like wrapped around Jesus' legs. I, I would look like an NFL linebacker tackling someone, and I can't tackle. You'd have to pry me off him. You'd have to beat me to, to, to leave. But that's the perspective, though, that we read throughout history. God reveals himself, except for in the garden where there's this ongoing relationship. Once that relationship is broken, he reveals himself to people here on earth through relationship, but it's going to be through faith. Someday, the scriptures reveal, we will spend eternity with him in his presence and his glory surrounding us. But during this time, from creation to recreation, this kingdom, this present time, he requires that we live for Him, by Him, through faith. We don't just get to, to hang out with Jesus all of our lives. Even the disciples, the apostles, did not get to do that, the twelve, but just for a few years. So why did He send them home? Just simply our mission here, to make disciples of all nations. It's not just about us but to go and share the message. We would love just to gather together here socially, you know, as, as people have said, and just love Jesus and hang out. But there's an entire world out there that has a sin problem. And God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And he's commanded us to give that message to them. So he sends them home. I believe that's the reason why. Verse 26, And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God. And they were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. They did, that day. The greatest miracles that I get to see today is changed lives in Jesus. Truly, if you have ever known anyone that has placed their faith and trust in Jesus, 
and turn to follow him, you will see radically changed lives. We have many, many members of our church that have incredible testimonies. They were once following the things of this world, were alcoholics, were involved in drugs, drug dealing, all sorts of different things. They came to know Jesus as their Lord, and they're an entirely different person, full of hope. They're not perfect people, they're just following a perfect Savior. But at the end of the day, we weren't there. I wasn't there, you weren't there. We have to trust. I'll close with these final verses. If you're wondering, how do I share Jesus? And this would be a good text to go to. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Once again, the Word of God is how people get saved. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Word of God is presented, and we have a choice based upon God's grace and His grace alone. Not that we can earn it, but we respond to this grace that was given us in Christ and through His Word. It says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name, both abundant life now and eternal life forever. That's the, that's the purpose. This isn't just for nice living. Or this isn't just to make you feel bad. It's that we might have life, that we might believe in Jesus. John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Acts 17, 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. All people. That gets a little tough. We, you, me, must repent. That means we acknowledge our sin. You actually have a conversation about it with God. You acknowledge it. You ask for his forgiveness. And you turn away from that sin pursuing or following God, as the scriptures often talk about. It's not that you're never going to fail. It's just simply you are now trusting in Jesus as Lord. You're confessing him as Lord, as Romans talks about. You have a new direction. You have a new life. It's no longer your own. As the Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. My life is no longer my own. I have died. That's the perspective. That's the biblical story of salvation. Not that you immediately will be transferred to heaven when you believe in Jesus. It's that you are given this new nature, a new heart. The Bible describes you are born again using these figures of speech. And then you begin following God, putting off the old nature and putting on the new. Colossians chapter 3, once again there. But the times of ignorance God overlooked. That's his grace. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So if you're watching this video and you believed in God, but you've never trusted in Jesus, I encourage you right now, repent. Believe. That is God's will, his express purpose in Scripture. He loves you. He loves the entire world. But he is also a just God. So now, while you have time, 
Simply repent. I'm not saying you have to become a priest or a pastor. None of that. It's you and Jesus. And as you follow Jesus, you will come into the church, the body of Christ. And it's just this daily relationship, this walk, as we encourage one another, teach one another, uh, build one another up, even rebuke one another if necessary. It's, it's not this made-up religion. It's just following Jesus. The very last one is this. Maybe you are saved, but as I mentioned earlier, there are some times where repentance is good for those that do know Jesus. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, he says, writing to believers, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't know about you, but I find myself maybe even within a given day, multiple times of taking my eyes off Jesus or the kingdom of God, which scripture says, seek first the kingdom of God. And I'm seeking my own desires and, and I fall into sin. But there's, there's this beautiful perspective that because Jesus can forgive sins and he is faithful and just to forgive it or forgive us our sins, all we have to do is come to him. But the nature of sin is just devious. It's terrible. Because while we're even engaged in sin and we recognize it's bad, we don't always immediately want to turn to our Savior. And it's in those battles that we encourage one another, that we love one another, build one another up. At the same time, we do not give people the license to sin. This passage in 1 John talks about walking in darkness. Now, this is just, hey, whenever we slip up, whenever we take our eyes off Jesus for a period of time, we're to return. And there's this beautiful promise that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Who alone can forgive sins? But God. You can't and I can't. And if you're mired in sin, I hope this very moment while you're watching this video, you realize the solution. The moment you do and you turn to God, life changes forever. Have a great week. We look forward to seeing you again in person very, very soon. Thank you for watching. God bless you.